Hello, everyone, and welcome. You know, the past few episodes, I've interviewed people that are creating change in the food industry. They are innovators that have seen gaps in our food system, and I've stepped up to fill those gaps and meet those needs. Today, my special guest is a change maker who is creating impact by training, mentoring, and helping the next generation of innovators for the food industry. His name is Jonathan Dish. He's a professor in the Department of Food and Hospitality Management at Drexel University. He earned his PhD in food studies from the City University of New York, and he also um, is a trained chef, and he is the founding director of Drexel Food Lab, a culinary innovation and food product research development lab focused on solving real world system problems in the area of sustainability, health promotion, and food access. He is named a James Bird Foundation Impact Fellow and is also a food waste warrior by Food, food Tank. Is a classically trained chef and has worked in a variety of settings before um, moving into academia. Jonathan, it's such a pleasure to have you here today and I look forward to our conversation together. Yeah, it's great to be here. All right. So I, I just like how I'm starting from um, the basics, just to give people an idea um, what your background, what your upbringing was and how those factors shaped the person you've become. So uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about you? Sure. Um, I um, always loved food and cooking and uh, my, my dream as a, as a child was to become a chef. Um, I think like many kids and many of our culinary students, we, we know what chefs are and we um, gravitate towards that if we're passionate about food. Um, and I did, uh, went to culinary school and, and worked in kitchens um, and always loved cooking and, and still love it, uh, but didn't love the restaurant life and uh, really came alive professionally when I discovered um, the field of being a research chef or a culinologist. Um, research chefs work at the intersection of culinary arts and food science. And while I didn't have any uh, formal food science training until later in life, um, as a young cook, I was really fascinated by the food chemistry and um, those food processing, how, you know, just sort of the wonders of how do we get, you know, a, a piece of fish that can last for a day or two in the fridge to be good for years in a can and, you know, just what are those mechanisms at, at play and, and so on. So um, really, really found my home in um, research chefing, product development, um, and then later got into education. Um, and I, I did both of those things and really kept the domain separate for uh, about uh, 12 or 14 years. I, I taught, you know, typical culinary arts courses, you know, stock sauces, knife skills, and also um, taught graduate courses in, in the um, School of Public Health in, in um, gastronomy, cultural foods, um, taught nutrition-oriented uh, classes, things like that. And, and really, um, outside of my, my day job uh, as an educator, would still do product development consulting and working with the food industry and so on. 
Um, and at Drexel, we are um, have this unique opportunity. We are a doctoral granting Carnegie R1 research university, but we happen to have this culinary program in addition to food science and hospitality management and other, other programs. And so it really gave us an opportunity to focus on food innovation, entrepreneurship, uh, uh, culinary science. Um, and so we could, I could combine really my, my passions for being a culinary educator with my um, interest in, in work and product development. So we have uh, something called the Drexel Food Lab, which is, engages our students in um, real world um, food product development and culinary innovation uh, that has positive impact on the health of people, planet, and economies. Um, and I direct our certificates in food entrepreneurship, which is an undergraduate certificate, and food innovation, which is a graduate certificate, and both are offered in conjunction with our entrepreneurship school. So it's a mix of entrepreneurship and business courses and culinary and food science courses. And, and we find that um, having um, comfort in both of those domains really sets someone up for success uh, in the field. Well, that's um, that's interesting, and it's good. thank you so much for sharing that. Um, one quick question before we dive deeper into your work and and also the impact that it's having on the general uh, food ecosystem. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your childhood? Are there some things in your childhood that uh, triggered your interest in food as a whole? You mentioned you like cooking, but did that start from a small age? You had a parent that loved cooking. How does that? How did that uh, come about for you? Yeah, sure. I grew up in um, the suburbs near um, Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, and um, I always say there we have two types of culinary students. We have um, culinary students who grow up at someone's apron strings, you know, a parent, a grandparent. They grew up mixing the batter and, and licking the cake beaters and, and that kind of childhood. And then we have um, people who had to fend for themselves and they learned to cook because um, their parents were busy and they wanted to eat something delicious and they figured out the best way to do that is to is to cook. And I have a, I think a mix of both. My, um, my grandfather was a great cook. Um, he, um, cooking was, was really a lifeline for him. He, um, immigrated to the US uh, after World War II, after um, surviving uh, concentration camps in uh, Eastern Europe, really you know, malnourished, horrible uh, adolescence. And like a lot of immigrants to this country, um, you know, found work doing, you know, initially textile sweatshop kind of work, and then um, cooking. Uh, he cooked in a nursing home and, and then, um, got into that um, that healthcare and, and nursing home uh, business professionally. And even though he was um, a cook for a relatively short part of his uh, career, um, never lost his, uh, his passion for cooking and his ability to cook for huge quantities of people. So he, he couldn't make a, a meal for one, but he was very skilled at making a meal for 20. <laughs> um, and so I learned from him and then I had the opposite experience too. Um, both my parents were, um, psychologists and, uh, worked, my dad worked in my, um, with my grandfather in the family business and my mom was in private practice. They worked long hours and, um, 
it's, you know, it was a wonderful childhood. It's not at all a sob story, but I was a, an overweight kid who liked to eat. And um, I realized that if I waited for my mom to come home and cook a healthy dinner, it would probably not be satisfying from a culinary perspective and it wouldn't be, you know, what I wanted to eat. And if I, um, as a, you know, maybe 12, 13 year old child said, hey, mom and dad, let me make dinner tonight. I could uh, make them very happy because they were busy with work and I could um, explore my passion for cooking and I could make exactly what I wanted to eat, no matter how fattening or indulgent or delicious. And what could they say? But thank you for making dinner. You know, they, they wouldn't complain. So, um, and uh, I started cooking professionally by 14. I, um, I cooked in uh, my, my, as I mentioned, my grandfather was in the, in the healthcare and um, nursing home business. He had, he had a summer camp for people with disabilities um, later in his career. So I cooked there. I cooked at uh, Boy Scout camp um, and uh, had an after school job making um, pasta and sausage for an Italian, you know, that served Italian restaurants with fresh pasta, ravioli and Italian sausage. So I just, um, I loved it and I still love it. Um, one of the reasons I I'm so happy teaching is I found that um, when I was, I moved up very quickly professionally in restaurants and hotels. And um, I found that while I, I do have a passion for cooking, I do not have a passion for management. And I found that the, the challenge is uh, you can only go so far as a cook and then someone puts you in charge and you're spending your day not cooking, but dealing with plumbers and unemployment claims and meetings and and if I really wanted to um, to be around food, uh, there had to be a better way to do that. And so research chefing and teaching are both fields where you can um, teach in culinary, of course, uh, are both fields where you can still uh, get your hands dirty in the kitchen when you when you want to. Um, thank you for sharing that. That's, um, that's a very robust uh, background there. I've been both I've been experiencing both um, areas. So let, I, I want to get your thoughts on the food innovation um, ecosystem. Generally, there's a lot of changes going on today, and I I want to get a, a sense of how you are training um, the next generation of innovators in the Drexel Food Lab, and in terms of what what preparation they have towards um, sustainability, um, bringing healthier products to the shelves. What 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 exactly uh, do you uh, work on in that area? Sure, I'll I'll take a step back first and and say that um, in general in in higher education there are I'm overgeneralizing deliberately but you'll see where I'm going with this. There are sort of two two types of um, educational programs. There's a group of programs that train people to be um, professionals in our current. Uh, conventional food system. Mm -hmm. So the future agroeconomists, um, food producers, food scientists, nutritionists, um, chefs, um, you know, uh, food marketers, and, and so on. And then there's a group of programs that are very critical of that um, industrial conventional food system. Uh, programs like public health, 
some nutrition programs, rural sociology, sustainable agriculture, right, who are proposing more alternative, um, more progressive, sustainable types of uh, alternatives to the conventional food system. And what, what I found as a student in both of those, so I started in culinary school, I came to Drexel for hospitality management, and so very much trained and rooted in the conventional. And then I studied uh, at NYU under Marion Nessel, who is a very well-known and vocal critic of the food system. Um, and I did food studies with um, professors like Amy Bentley, who is my, my advisor, Krishnendu Ray, um, who are very critical of, of the food system and, um, and, and for good reason, right? And, and so the idea is, I think there's opportunities at the intersection and, and we can teach our students that where, yes, you know, you can be critical and, and see ways to do things better in the food system. And you don't have to wait until you're in your 50s and you've had a successful career to then look back and say, let's leave things best, better for the next generation. You can do that from the outset at 18. Uh, but in order to be effective, you can't just throw barbs at the food system and write things, write policies and, and complain. You have to have solutions, right? And so having the hands-on training and culinary arts and food science, food processing, engineering, you can actually come up with solutions, entrepreneurship, innovation. You can actually come up with solutions that will um, make the food system more sustainable while also making money and, you know, uh, helping the economy and, and healthier, right? So um, we really try to get our students um, doing those things from the outset so that they can spend the best decades of their career, the most productive decades of their career, being being change makers, um, uh, and it's working. So, um, you know, we have we have graduates who've gone on to start um, their own businesses, who are leaders in industry, in nonprofit, and and so on. And it's it's extremely rewarding. That's great, and and you know, I I absolutely agree with you that we can actually see flaws in the system and do something to fix it. We can, we can right. make recommendations, we can take actions to fix it, absolutely. And it's good to see how you're shaping uh, the next generation as well uh, to go out there and create impact. So I want to talk briefly about um, your work with waste management. So you received an award um, from James Bird Foundation and I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. How did you get into that area? Sure. Um... We got into that area at the request of a wonderful man named Tom O'Donnell, who uh, used to be with the EPA, Environmental Protection Administration, um, in our region here in Philadelphia, which is region three. And um, he came to us with a request, which is to um, better manage our surplus food and food donations as a culinary school to feed people in the community. And um, in talking to him, um, we, we did a lot of work with um, other institutions like supermarkets, colleges, uh, restaurants, who tend to have surplus food and make sure it gets to people who need it. Yeah. And while Tom and his colleagues were very skilled at measuring pounds of food going to people who needed it. Um, 
they were not really looking at the quality of food. And so um, we felt as cooks that there was a lot of impact we could have in um, making the food that was being donated into something much more palatable and appealing and um, respectful and delicious and craveable using our culinary arts and food science skills. And um, really got into this world of upcycled food and upcycling, taking something that was um, destined for the waste bin um, because it's a byproduct or a scrap, but it's still, you know, food is food is food and not waste until we, you know, if we have an apple on our desk, it's an apple. If we take the same apple and put it in the waste bin, it's trash, but the apple is still has the same nutrition and, and fiber and, and flavor that it has, whether it's in the, in the trash bin or on the desk. So we're not talking about spoiled food, but we're talking about maybe ends and stems and trims and peels of food. We're talking about seconds that are uh, still delicious, but maybe cosmetically not up to standards. Um, and uh, we're talking about natural byproducts, like things like uh, brewer spent grain or okara, which is the pulp after you make soy milk or tofu, right? Those kinds of ingredients um, can be repurposed and upcycled into really flavorful, wonderful foods. Um, and so this has become a, not all we do, um, we also work on a lot of therapeutic foods for health promotion. We work on helping startups uh, commercialize their innovations. But a large part of our portfolio, probably half our portfolio, is upcycled food and upcycled ingredients, um, using food that would otherwise be wasted and, and giving it higher value. Well, yeah, and that's, that's very much needed uh, today, uh, especially with um, a number of people suffering with insecurity, having a way to effectively um, upcycle food and um, and um, make it available to people who ordinarily would not have it. It's, um, it's definitely something that's needed. Okay, so um, I want to talk a little bit about the, the food industry as a whole today and just to get your perspective on it. One of the key things we're seeing is a new innovation coming into the market. We have plant-based food, we have um, plant-based um, plant meat, we have um, lab-grown meat, we have we just have a lot of exciting innovation coming to the marketplace. As um, as a chef and a food um, expert, what are your thoughts on um, the food industry today, and what do you think? Um, we should work on more for the future to be as sustainable and be able to support our growing populations in years to come. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there's a lot happening right now um, from trends that are very kind of, I, I don't want to minimize them, but, but sort of uh, small in terms of flavor, new flavors or, um, you know, extensions of very familiar things. Um, through entirely new technologies that have the potential, if not the the reality yet, uh, to revolutionize the way we're eating. And I think um, there's a, a food studies scholar um, whose uh, work all of my students read. His name is Warren Belasco. And Warren um, wrote a book called Meals to Come, The History of the Future of Food, which is about how people have thought about the future of food historically 
over the last few hundred years. And, and in general, he, he puts um, people into two camps, uh, the anthropological camp, which is in order for us to sustain our food system, we have to make individual changes. We have to um, make changes as a society in our consumption. So less red meat, less ultra processed food. We have to go back to whole foods, vegetables, grains, and so on. And we have to change our habits. And the technological fix, which says, you know what, in the 60 or 70 years between the Wright brothers' first flight and the moon landing, we uh, took something that was impossible and made it possible. Yeah. And surely with, um, with science and with enough smart people putting their minds to it, we can have sustainable food forever, right? And yes, there's, there's challenges, uh, but they could be overcome. And I think what we're seeing now in the food industry is really both of those things at play together. So you're okay. seeing things like um, broad acknowledgement that um, animal, um, you know, meat and, and animals are a very intensive uh, resource, both in terms of water, fossil fuels, environmental impact. Um, and so there are a number of companies that are focused on um, minimizing um, the use of those uh, meats with things like alternative proteins or doing them in a more sustainable way. So there's a company who uh, we've worked with who takes um, grocery store surplus and turns it into chicken feed and then sells the chicken that is raised on that chicken feed and so instead of growing, you know, grain just to make animal feed, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that approach, which I, which I would consider the anthropological approach. And then there are people saying, yes, well, animals may be um, a challenge sustainability-wise, uh, but meat is uh, highly prized and highly valued by consumers. And we can find a, a way to get it to them through cellular culture or through, um, through other means. And, and that would be the technological effect. So, so you're seeing solutions um, in, in both places, um, which is, I think, fascinating. Um, the other thing that's fascinating is, is you could argue that uh, underpinning really the history of the world has been a history for um, the history of culinary exchange, right? That our, our earliest explorations of, um, and cross-cultural exchanges were about food often in horrible, problematic ways, um, often in really wonderful ways. But regardless, it was about, you know, finding new sources of food, new flavors, culinary exchange. Um, and, um, and this goes back, you know, to our earliest, um, our earliest interactions as, as people. And now what we're seeing with, um, with the world shrinking um, due to social media and due to communication, um, we're seeing influences and flavors and, and really rich understandings of food from all over the world um, instantly and, and highly accessible and, and in ways that um, the, the role of experts have really changed. You know, it, people used to come to me as a, as a so-called food expert to talk about what's happening uh, in the in the food world, 
Um, and now you can see what's happening in the food world through TikTok and my kids are telling me what's happening in the food world. And so um, it's really interesting how um, democratized uh, food has become, right? Where, where there's no, if you, if you wanna learn how to make something and make a dish, you don't have to find the right cookbook in the library or enroll in culinary school or find um, the right um, ambassador from a certain culture who could teach you how their grandmother made that food. You can go on YouTube and put in just about anything and, and see a video of someone uh, either being filmed making that dish or um, teaching someone how to make that dish. And um, it's been it's been a really wonderful environment um, for our, our students, and it's it's one that I think our, many culinary educators are still um, getting their heads around. Hmm. And and the beautiful thing about um, uh, having information readily available for people to um, to glean from uh, is also that you have um, you also have the wrong information sometimes that people are not sure, especially people that are trying to learn, I'm not sure which one is the right one and which one is not the right one. Sure. So yeah. that's um, a downside to, uh, to that. And, yeah, I mean, the, the downside of, for sure, the downside of this information age is it challenges us to be much more discerning mm -hmm. of what is out there. You know, right. I used, um, I, I like to play with new technologies and think about how they can be useful. So when um, I, I was, I've been playing with chat GPT just to see what I can and can't do. Yeah. And I, I'm going to Chicago next week, actually for the food innovate conference. Yeah. Um, and I put in, you know, where I'm staying and, and what I'm looking for. And I put in um, a request for restaurant recommendations just to see how it would perform against a human because I've also asked some friends where I should dine in Chicago. And uh, two of the four results were permanently closed. Uh, you know. <laughs> so clearly, these are not, um, you know, machines can't do everything yet. Right. But I will say they all looked appealing to me, even though two of them were impossible to visit. Um, right, right. It's, um, it's been a really, really fascinating um, journey and continues to be. Yeah, it's definitely very fascinating, definitely. And um, before we leave the food innovation space and, and food industry as a whole, um, there is, after two years of a global pandemic, people are more mindful of their health. People are trying to uh, stay on top of their health, trying to understand what they can eat, how they can eat to optimize health. So, of course, with that, with, with that landscape, with that um, mindset out there, that is also driving change in the food industry. Even before the pandemic, there's been change and a drift towards healthier products, good for you products on the shelf. I just want to get your thoughts on that direction. Um, of course, when you have a very strong demand for something, then you have marketing, um, marketing deceit, more or less like some people saying, oh, this is low sugar, but it's not. This is, you know, all that going on. So I just want to get your thoughts on uh, the be best direction or what you envision the direction will be in the next few years with, especially in regard to having healthier products on the shelf. Absolutely. It's um, functional foods, foods that promote certain types of health properties are huge industry and um, have boomed since the pandemic. Um, and if you go to a trade show like uh, Expo East or West or fancy food show, you'll see it's 
almost hard to find a food that just is a food. It's very hard to find, for example, a good piece of chewing gum that's just a good piece of chewing gum. But you have chewing gum that's caffeinated or good for your memory or loaded with vitamin C for immunity, right? So everything has a little twist on it. Um, I see that as um, one aspect of food for health, but there's a there's another way to look at it, which is um, you know we have we have um, what's often referred to as the standard American diet or SAD, ultra processed, heavy, um, low in fiber, uh, dense in calories, um, low in fresh vegetables, and um, the, the, that diet, which not, of course, we don't always eat that way all the time, but we have a lot of those foods available to us, um, can re result in a lot of um, negative health outcomes, um, non-communicable diseases like heart disease, diabetes, uh, overweight and obesity, and, and its implications, and so on. And our, our traditional way of dealing with that is through medicine. So, um, you know, you, you um, spend your adulthood eating in ways that you maybe shouldn't always eat uh, and drinking for that matter in, in ways that you shouldn't be drinking. And then you go to the doctor and they say, well, you need something for your cholesterol and you need something for your diabetes and you need, you need this and you need that and you need to undo the damage that you've done to yourself. And, and that's a very dysfunctional system, right, as compared to a preventative approach and a lifestyle approach where we say, yeah, there's nothing wrong with indulgence and dessert and um, and, and a little bit of grease, you know, um, food is health and mental health is part of that. Um, but if we can eat um, more vegetables, whole grains, good fats, um, and, and less ultra-processed food and, um, and, and more fiber. And we can eat that way consistently with, you know, with, with indulgence and moderation. We may have fewer of those problems later in life that we have to address and, and, and treat, you know, treat it with drugs. So if we, can, if we can use food for health earlier, we, we have less uh, damage to undo later. And, and uh, that's something we're really trying to promote um, with our students and also with our industry clients as we develop um, new, new food products. Thank you. And finally, as we wrap up, I just want to get your thoughts on the future you're envisioning for um, Drexel Food Lab and the graduates from your program and how you envision uh, things to evolve over time that they're, they're creating um, stronger and bigger impacts in the community? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think we, we really have to rethink, there's been a reckoning in higher education and in culinary education in particular. Um, culinary education is very challenging to operate as a, as a business, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit, right? You have, if you, if you compare it to, um, let's say a business school, in a business school, you could have 150 people in a marketing lecture with one professor, and it's uh, maybe a two or three hour lecture. In culinary school, uh, typically we cap our classes at 16 or 18. We have longer classes, typically five or six hours, because we have to set up, we have to lecture, cook, clean up, and so on. 
We have food costs, which as you know, and food inflation is high. So those costs have gone up. Um, we have a lot of um, things that make administrators, keep administrators up at night, like grease and fire and alcohol and, you know, open flames and knives. And, you know, they, uh, there's a lot of risk and a lot of uh, moving pieces to manage. Um, and as a, as a result, culinary school tuition is, is often very high. And um, wages in, in traditional culinary fields, like being, being a chef or a cook or um, working in food manufacturing on a factory floor are typically very low. So they're not, they're not commensurate with the tuition. So I've been a big advocate of um, really flipping the, the education around where historically it's been, you go to culinary school, you learn, and then you go out and you get an entry level position and work your way up. And what I'm trying to encourage for our students is that they do their entry level work while they're in school. So they're cooking and learning at the same time. Um, they're learning on the job and in the classroom. And when they graduate, they've had a few years of, of part or full-time work, plus a few years of part or full-time study, and they're ready to take the next step whether that's as in a managerial role in, in the industry or whether that's in an adjacent industry like um, food product development or um, you know, equipment or um, software. There's so many other um, adjacencies to the actual operations where our students um, can find um, good jobs and good quality of life. Um, so that's that's one part of it. And the other part of it, I think, is, as I mentioned before, really getting students concerned about the sustainability of our food system and the health of our food from their earliest days as students at 18 um, and having them really graduate with that mindset and be able to have immediate impact throughout their 20s and 30s and 40s when they're really hustling and really working so that they can leave a legacy um, and, and, and also have the ability to make high impact decisions as leaders in major food companies and government and nonprofit and um, be able to point to those or as entrepreneurs and be able to point to those changes that they've made. So I'm, I'm very optimistic. I think it's a great field and it's a field that can't go anywhere. I mean, we, um, Without food, you know, we can talk a lot about a lot of issues, you know, um, education, um, violence, um, injustice, and, and so on. Um, but without food, we don't exist and we can't talk about any of it. Mm -hmm. And so we need to go back to that core of, of really climate and food, which are the foundation upon which everything else in society that we can be celebrating or improving or fighting about none of it can happen without that foundation and that's where our um, talent is so needed hmm. well thank you so much it's been a great um time talking with you and just um, learning more about your work about uh, your background and the future your ambition as well uh, thank you for being a change maker and also uh, training the next generation of change makers as well um, to everyone watching, thank you so much for your time. And until the next time when I bring in another exceptional guest your way, uh, stay safe. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.
Okay. 